Hi, welcome to Space Bras, the podcast for bad bitch sci-fi nerds. I'm Kate Whitney, and with me is the ruler of all the mer people and uh, empress of the dolphins, sea goddess Mary Johnston herself. What's up, girl? Oh my god, well, I just, uh, boy are my arms tired from swimming. <laughs> That's an amazing description. I'm into it. As a woman who spends at least two days out of the week in an incredibly chlorinated pool, I usually do smell a little bit like pool water now, I've noticed. No, it's perfect. That means that, like, you really are just training up for your future as empress of the sea, basically. Of the sea. Of the sea. All of it. Yeah. I'm taking Not the ocean. I'm just ta- the sea at large. Yeah, of course. I'm taking this aqua, uh... This aqua. I'm trying to think what she calls it. It's like aqua fusion, but it's yoga fusion, I think, because it's yoga in water, which is great. Stop. Which is that sounds amazing and also like a ridiculous name. That's like the worst name ever for something I would really enjoy. I know. It sounds. It sounds like a yogurt you don't want to eat. <laughs> this is Alien. So Kate and I Ooh. watched woohoo, the director's cut version of Alien. Um, this is just a quick trigger warning for all listeners. Good. As we uh, dig into Alien, which of course straddles that line between um, horror and sci-fi, we'll be describing upsetting scenes from the film that that might that might trigger you, and specifically, uh, we'll be discussing rape pretty heavily throughout this episode. So if that's something that uh, you don't want to take on, catch us next time. Yeah, I would not say it's the scariest movie of all time, though. If that if that's the thing that's stopping you, it's no saw, right, Mary? <laughs> no, I mean. Not that I've ever seen Saw, but from what I've heard about it, it's no Saw. Um, yes, I love... Most qualified. I love horror movies, and this I would only... It's like... uh, It's like suspenseful sci-fi more than it is true horror. Yeah, it's like if Hitchcock made a monster movie. Well, I don't know, though. I don't know. It's there's. I mean, like, can, can Mary, any, my hot takes are amazing. <laughs> no, it's good, but like, then I was thinking about it, and I was like, no, a lot of really horrifying body. Like, it's like, um, it's more Cronenberg than it is anything else. I would say. Fair enough. If you can watch, like, The Fly. Yeah, if you can watch The Thing, you can watch Alien. I would say. If like, that's fair. It's and like, definitely you can watch it. Like, it's not. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be just fine. Um, why did we watch the director's cut, Kate? And will it impact people who have not seen the director's cut, but have just seen the OG? It should not. Um, the director's cut was what was available after scouring the internet, and we like to use the things that are accessible to everyone. Um, I did some research. It seems like the differences are minimal. So if you've seen the original, you should be golden. If you haven't seen Alien at all and are worried about spoilers, press pause. Give it a watch. Come right back. We're going to be waiting for you until you press play right again, because technology. Kate's nicer than I am. This movie came out um, on the cusp of the 80s, so get over yourself, is what I have to say. Um, So we we open up on some footage of a commercial space tug called the Nostromo, slowly booting itself up um, after a long, dormant period of just kind of quietly floating through space. So we see some control screens flickering to life. Some automatic sliding doors are are gliding open. And we have these kind of panning shots of this this ship readying itself to welcome um, the seven-member crew out of stasis. Um, This opening is quiet and kind of mundane, despite the fact that we're looking at fantastical things, certainly fantastical, fantastical futuristic things by the the 1979 standards when it came out. And also very cool looking in contemporary standards. Oh, totally. But But you're absolutely right. It like the the tone like belies what's happening. Absolutely. And um, it kind of reminds me of uh, if I come into work early, because uh, we have kind of flexible schedules at my job, I can come into work and around like 730-ish. And the the building is not yet alive yet. So I'll like go in and I'll be sitting at my desk having a cup of coffee and automatic lights start flipping on and things start coming, you know, coming alive. Um, only in this case... These warm lights are bathing ducked in robed uh, gangways and spacesuits instead of my little workstation pod and my desk tchotchkes. 
So it's sort of a familiar scene, but in a way that is to- is alien. And I would say that that is kind of sets you up perfectly for what happens in this film. Mm-hmm. We then see... I agree. We kind of come in... This part is almost... Um, it reminds me, actually, of that scene uh, in the original Fantasia when you're about to see the hippos and the ostriches dance, where they, like, mm-hmm. open it and that wind... That, big like glorious gold curtain gets swept to the side same thing happens you have this long panning shot as you go towards um a doorway and it slides open it's very theatrical almost operatic yeah and then you see the first like member of the crew kind of sit up and from their like space pods that look like they were designed by um apple and stretch yeah yeah. i was gonna say like they remind me of the guggenheim you know i mean just like everything's like white and minimal and yeah 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 but you're right, Apple, for sure, for sure. Also capitalized the shit off of that. It literally, like, they really pulled their setting just from, like, white and also lights up, you know, for the first, like, iPod. Anyway. So true. And very, like, pl- like kind of opaque plastic, white plastic. Although I mm-hmm. like you call the Guggenheim's a much more classy reference. Although I'm, I'm like, I was at the mall once. And- <laughs> no, stop. Okay. <laughs> I was not being that guy. I was just like, you know, whatever. Go ahead, Mary. But just as I come in uh, to work in the morning and slouch into our kitchen and make myself a sad little bowl of um, yogurt and chia seeds, this crew stretches, gets all the kinks out, and then trudges into the kitchen to make themselves some brekkie. First things first. Gotta get some grub. That's right. I love this intro, though. It's so... It's... You know, human. it's so human. Yeah. And I like yeah. that. Like initially they kind of wake up and they have they have moments like you don't even you don't even really know who everybody is yet. But you have this kind of panning shot of them around uh, their dining table as they're just kind of eating breakfast. And at that point, you kind of realize that they have they don't actually even really know where they are. They just know that the ship woke them up. And yeah. that this is like normal humdrum life. It's really cool because you're right. Like it's just everyone there in that scene and it's not clear who the protagonist is at all. Like uh, the camera's not favoring someone in a way that like, you're like, that's definitely the person, you know? Right. Right. And it's important to note um, that Sigourney Weaver, who of course was, you know, is a megastar. Um, the megastar. The megastar. <laughs> right. But like we think of her, we think of her and this is her movie. No one would have known that because she was not a big deal at this point. Um, if anything, uh, the uh, Tom Skerritt playing Captain Dallas or even Officer Kane as John Hurt, although were more definitely more famous. Um Probably you wouldn't get too thrown by Harry Dean Stanton because he was kind of like always a character actor. So you probably knew he wasn't the main character, but yeah. probably you thought it was either Scarrett or Hurt. We're going to be we're going to be the main characters, especially if you watch the um, the old the original theatrical uh, trailers that they released. They don't tell you much. There's not yeah. there's not much going on there. Um, so one of the reasons when this film came out, um critics generally responded to it very positively and there was a lot of stuff written um about the fact that although this is a horror movie it's not a horror movie in the way it doesn't feature horror movie protagonists in the way that we expect you know if you were if you were shooting a movie where you had like a bunch of people um watching a horror movie you would have like a fake horror movie you would have like prom queens or cheerleaders or football players or you know kind of trash bag teenagers is who you would have and this movie instead of you know those movies kind of play on the idea that they will um if you are your teenager yourself you'll be titillated and if you're an adult, you'll also probably be titillated, which is disturbing. But you'll also have some sense of, oh, these people are vulnerable. I wish to protect them. This movie didn't do that. Instead, they cast uh, a cast of almost like full adults. Most of the people in this movie are over the age of 40. Sigourney Weaver is the youngest in the cast and she's 29, which, as we all know, makes her like an old lady by Hollywood standards. Also, the, yeah. also the exact age that you and I are now. 
Indeed. Mm. Look at that. Uh, <laughs> makes me feel better or worse about where I am in life. <laughs> It, makes, it me, makes me feel something. It makes me feel better. I'm like, oh, she's only 29. And maybe one day I can also achieve that mane of glorious curly hair. Oh, um, my God, right? That, it, like, just, I mean, I will never achieve that bone structure, but no. a girl can dream. This cast is painfully relatable. I see, even though they are floating through space and mixing up astronaut ice cream food, I still see, <laughs> I still see myself in them. Um, as a person, yeah, there are who's... people who could have families and stuff, right? As a person who's punching the nine to five clock, they have families. Yeah, they're not, and and the reason that works for this horror movie is that if I see myself in that person, I think of them as less disposable, as potentially totally a, a sexualized teenager. Yeah, no, we've we have talked offline about like this idea of how America hates like um, teenage girls, but also probably just teenagers in general, and. <laughs> So it's real easy to have them like killed off in horror movies because um, in some way we're always sure that they're doing it wrong. Whatever it is that they're doing, they're not doing it right. And so it's really, um, yeah, it's it's very different to have uh, to care as much as we do about the cast. Yeah. All right. They soon learned that they aren't approaching Earth as they assumed. They thought that they had been woken up because they were they were nearing their destination and they would need to ready themselves for landing, but they're not. They're still in the vast wilds of space. And the ship's uh, OS system, um, who they all affectionately refer to as Mother, um, roused them because a distress signal coming from a nearby planetoid um, set in motion a, you know, kind of a, a rescue protocol that they're all, they're all conscripted to. So the cat, the crew decides that the captain Dallas, um, and the executive officer Kane and the navigator, uh, Lambert should all go out and respond to this distress signal. Which actually seems kind of weird. I would not send those people out onto a planetoid if I were them. They seem fairly important, especially Lambert. To uh, you, I think you would need a navigator if um, <laughs> you would not want to risk that person. But they do, and they leave. And Ripley is left as the acting officer aboard the Nostromo. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the rescue crew goes back to this. Let's put it wonderfully disturbing primordial ship. Uh, which means, so they go into this giant chamber inside this ship, and it looks like you're inside of a human body. Like, maybe not human, because everything's black, but, like, it seems spiny, and feels like you're in, like, a rib cage, and you can kind of see on the walls, like, where, you know, like, literally, the, the spine would be the backbone. And they're wandering around in this, in this place, and they're realizing that something's off, but then some dude decides he needs to get a closer look when he sees some like weird looking eggs that are transparent and covered in slime. And like if he reaches down, like he can go past this like plasma uh, protective sphere. But like, I mean, they're protected by something. And he's like, oh, let's take a closer look. You know, no offense, Steve Irwin. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> as a result... Uh, Kane, uh, our dear, uh, shipman, uh, gets, uh, sucked to the face with, uh, a new alien-like kind of, um, incubator life form thing. I mean, I think it's, like, really, he's, like, raping that guy's body, but, like, I don't know a better way to say it. I'm I don't know if they call them face suckers in the Alien franchise. They certainly don't call them anything in this movie like nothing oh, has absolutely a name. they but, never give them a name but uh, later on they do but for uh you know the common colloquial term that we come to have used to express this thing is he gets attacked by one of the the face suckers which, which are... is exactly what's doing this thing like it like like it's like you know we all imagine plants like a venus flytrap we all imagine <laughs> we all imagine that a venus flytrap will just like clamp onto your face and not let like, go yeah um, it's sort of that's like what you think too and that's what it basically does <laughs> now we get a little view into some of kate's nightmares 
Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like this thing is night- this thing is nightmarish though. It looks like if you cross it is so nightmarish. Like an Alaskan king crab with a stingray body and a scorpion tail. And everything yeah. is just like fleshy and beige about it. It's not it's not an attractive creature. Yeah. So the this this sequence of events, the um the distress signal, the protocol in everybody's contract saying that they must so they have to go you know seek out this rescue mission distress yep. signal and um kane unfortunately getting attacked in this room full of eggs yeah the alien eggs that you see are like they look both alive and glassy like they're transparent and there's something happening inside of them which is why i would never touch them like they look they don't look benign, is all I'm going no, to say. They no. look fascinating, but not benign. Yeah. Um, they, are, they are simultaneously uh, they are simultaneously very old and also like way too raw seeming. It's a weird mm-hmm. it's a weird, wonderful bit of production design. This is all to say Absolutely. This is all to say, so like this series of events, this chain of events, kicks off um, basically the rest of the movie. Like, all of these things then, like, set us up for the drama that we're about to witness over the course of the rest of the film. And also give us a little bit of a preview and and signal to the audience that perhaps this blockbuster horror flick is going to to dig into sexual politics. um, And namely the horrors of rape and violent violent procreation in a way that... Uh In a way that most movies wouldn't touch. This is not a popcorn flick. This has something really something not. going on more. Yeah. So what happens after he gets attacked by the space clinger? So everybody's freaking out, uh, reasonably, because one of their own men is down and they can't get this, like, thing off of his face. So they're like, we're going to go straight to the ship. And they go to the ship and they get there and, like, the, the captain, Dallas, is, like, buzzing but uh, Ripley's first in command now that he's off the ship, and it's just her and Ash, a really fun head of the science department, and everyone's like, let me in. And she's like, someone's contaminated? We have a protocol for this. Uh, you know, you've got to be decontaminated. You're going to have to be quarantined for a while. And everyone's freaking out. She's like, no, this is just like, these are the rules. It doesn't look like she's taking join this. It's not vindictive. It's just like, this is how this is supposed to happen and Ash ends up overruling her by opening up uh, the door without permission. Yeah. Like a real letting, jerk. And letting, like a real dude who thinks he knows what's best. I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> he mansplains really her by opening that door. I mean. Right. Well, what he does I've is. I've got a lot of amazing male friends who just want to throw that out there. Mary's married <laughs> to man. So, you know, we're not. Anyway, go ahead, Mary. I mean, what I'm saying is, menai, menai. You're not more, yeah. you're not better than all right. But yeah. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> but no, wait, 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 wait. As Lisa would say, "Why men great till they gotta be great?" Mm-hmm. Totally lost it. I don't know if you've heard "The Truth Hurts," but it's an amazing song, and you I gotta agree. listen to it. All right. Anyways, I'm so sorry. highly recommend it. So, <laughs> despite protocol, despite the acting officers' um, uh, pronouncements and di- explicit directions. Kane is brought back onto the ship and taken to sick bay where they scan him and they see that this face clinger has inserted something down his throat and it appears to be providing him with oxygen and, you know, it isn't smothering him or killing him. Yeah, but, it's keeping him alive. But has seems to have developed some sort of symbiotic relationship with him. Um, and mm-hmm. we will later learn that it's not benign and kind like a sucker on a shark or something of that nature, or the little, all the little skin mites that live in our pillows. Instead, it's impregnating him with an egg. So it's, it's unlike these other things uh, that might seem benign. This thing has shoved a, like a, a, an organ down his throat and into his body where he can, like, I really want to, so do they deposit the the egg in the lungs? Like, I'm I'm now curious. I've never thought about that. I guess so. Yeah. It must yeah, that would be. make sense, it's right? Like, it's, yeah, because it's like it just seems in to the breast somewhere. Like, you're not trying to keep someone alive, you know? No. No. Yeah. no. It's somewhere, it's somewhere in your respiratory system. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, so they, so they have Kane and sickbay, they're kind of trying to figure out, like, 
what are we going to do with this thing? Do we kill yeah, they can't it? Get the thing off of them. It seems like it's keeping him alive. Right. And later they discover that um, the creature has uh, has come off and is laying and is, is laying dead, and mm-hmm. Kane appears to be okay. And we see that Kane yeah. is sitting, kind of sitting up um, in his in his hospital bed, his space hospital bed, and he's wearing just an insane outfit. He's stripped down. <laughs> We can only assume they cut off his it's clothes. Like, it looks like Mormon underwear a little bit. It's like if Mormons were going to Rocky Horror. He's like, yes. we know that they cut his clothes off. So he's, we assume he's wearing his underpants. It makes him look both like a little baby. And it's also reminiscent of lingerie. It's very uncomfortable. So it's um, adult. Yeah. Man, baby lingerie. I know that that is a thing. <laughs> also, there are people out there that are into that. So. Maybe lingerie, come and get it. Just watch Alien. We're not saying we're not saying that you're wrong for liking it, but we are saying society might be a little bit ashamed for for implanting that into certain people that we want <laughs> that we want to see that we want to see sexy yeah. baby lingerie. You do you, but <laughs> but mm. it bothers me less when it's men for some reason, just because I'm like, well, because because Kane in this weird corset, like there's not you know. We're well, just because, in a dude's chest. Because of the male gaze, that's why. Like, yeah. We'll never we'll never look at him in a sexual way. But I do I would say that it uh th- this is actually played, I think, kind of masterfully. I think this, I mean, obviously there's no mistakes. All of these things are carefully well thought out, which is why it's a classic and why we're talking about it now. But yeah. what his way of dressing to me indicates that he is He's like, um, it reminds me of like women who wake up and don't really know where they are in the morning and their clothes aren't the way, like the way that they were supposed to be. And yeah. they're, they're, they're no, vulnerable, yeah. but they're also like sexually, like some, something used them in a sexual way and they, they're not yeah. in control of their, they, they weren't in control. They've been used. They feel disoriented and dazed. Um, I think used is literally the kindest term we can put for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he dis- and so the his crew comes in and are talking to him and say, you know, what do you remember? Are you you know, like we're so happy to see you, but like what happened? And he says, um, I remember some horrible dream about smothering. And then he kind of like shakes himself and like brushes it off and says and says um that he's really hungry and wants something to eat. Yeah. And I think that's like such a classic rape metaphor, but it's not it's not what you would think about in horror movies where you have like a boogeyman that like grabs you from the dark or like pops up in the least expected places and, and snags you. It's quiet. It's, it's a a force being held over you that you can't, that you can't control. And you're only, it's more insidious. Yeah. And your only course of action is to, to, to brush it away to and, to, and to repress right like yeah. he, he basically he starts to kind of think about and remember what was what he experienced but it's too terrible so he just kind of forgets it it's um it's time for tea to meal right yeah I, I honestly feel like if the next scene didn't play out the way that it did that it'd be really interesting to have seen uh kane's uh reaction to his trauma but you know oh yeah whatever. yeah totally so just as this is sort of we're kind of painting this as more of, of a like marital rape where you have people who experience something and it to, because society is garbage, it might exist in a place where people are yeah, like le- legitimate rape. Right. <clears throat> like it might. Exactly. We live in a society where people feel comfortable saying stuff like that. This is the this is the experience where people say, "Well, but like I experienced this, but like it didn't. It's not as bad as I think it is." Or I'm just gonna kind of brush it aside. However, in case I would, I would like to just real quick because like we are a teaching and learning and academic podcast, right? <laughs> we are not just a pop culture <laughs> podcast. But did you all know that rape culture really stems from Blackwell's Law, which was a, a, a precedent set in Europe where when a wife married a man, she became his property, and therefore she was him, and you can't rape yourself, so therefore you can't rape your wife. And that's, that, my friends, is where that kind of thought comes from. Huzzah! Oh my god. Isn't that horrifying? That's anyway, awful. The things you learn. So, 
Kane cannot hold the horror at bay with mere repression alone because mm-hmm. just just like trauma, you cannot hold violent actions down forever. And in his case, unfortunately, an angry little phallus with a with a grin is gonna burst out and really ruin your morning. The next scene is when they're eating breakfast. Like like we said, he wakes up, he thinks he should eat some food. Maybe it's lunch. Who knows? I don't I, I certainly don't pretend to. Time and space. It's like it's like the Russian white nights. You just eat what you're in the mood for when yeah. you're in the mood for it. Yeah. They eat food. He's yeah. hungry, they eat some food. Um so- so we get to, and we get to the scene, the, the scene. first big scene. Right. So this is the scene. If if you haven't seen Alien, you've probably seen the scene where yeah. uh, where John Hurt is convulsing on a table, and the alien pops out of his chest, kind of pant, looks around the room, and then woo, and then makes this hissing noise, and like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I have some information about this. Is a this is sort of a. Behind the scenes? Uh, yeah, it's definitely behind the scenes, but this is like a famous, you know, just like um, just like you read about, uh, you know, things that happened that happened on the, the set of Poltergeist or like The Exorcist, like all those things. Horror movie, you can't have a good horror movie without having some creepy information about what happened when they were actually filming it. So none of the crew, so none, like the other actors, didn't really know how this was going to work. They walked John Hurt through it because, of course, he had to wear a fake chest and, you know, he had to kind of know how these mechanics were going to go. But nobody else did. They were just sort of given loose stage instructions and they were shown roughly how it was going to work. Like they were shown a diagram of like where they should be and what where the main action was going to be on this uh, on this on the uh, stage that day. So, yeah, uh, Lambert, who's played by Veronica Cartwright, um, said they showed us a mock up, but they didn't show us how it was really going to work. And they definitely didn't give them a preview. They said the head will move and it's going to have teeth. And then it was, you know, this was a long day of shooting. They were on a hot set with big, heavy lights. And um, the director or the the other actors, uh, you know, John Hurt was taken away to makeup and he was gone for a really, really long time. So the actors at this point had kind of bonded together and, you know, you're starting to get a little bit punchy. You've been working a long hard right. day. So they were actually genuinely concerned about him. <laughs> he was gone for so long. Um, and he's eventually, you know, brought back out and he's all rigged up. And the actors were directed to lean over him. And when they did, they realized that his fake chest was full of actual real animal guts that they got yeah. from a butcher. And then, like, kind of splashed some formaldehyde over so they wouldn't completely spoil under the hot lights but so it's gonna smell amazing yeah it smelled absolutely terrible so veronica cartwright said that she was on like the verge of puking this whole time just from like the smell and the exhaustion and they all lean over and his chest had a couple um like kind of blood jets you know in them to so that when you burst open it would be this kind of explosive scene and unfortunately she was over absolutely one of them and got hit full in the face with this fake blood. And you can see it when you watch the movie. Um, you see her really raw reaction and she looks surprised and angry and upset, like all of those things. And then it cuts off right away because she fainted dead away <laughs> after that happened. Yeah, and she looked like horrified. So from there, um, the alien, which we will later find out, post this movie are called xenomorphs yeah um, escape and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh and starts to grow and picking and picks off the white male cast members one by one until the only people that are left are the others which are ripley lambert and parker who are left to figure out the escape plan ripley and lambert are women and parker is a black guy so mm-hmm. everyone else on the crew, uh, everyone else on the crew is sort of dispatched um, out. It is really interesting because uh, it's, the, it's the people who face oppression that seem to understand more the stakes of the game, uh, understand their own uh, gap with mortality, and that um, there can be a dangerous figure that only means you harm. Um, you know, really uplifting stuff that does not reflect our current <laughs> times at all. So, dope. 
Yeah. Yeah. So many many writers, you know, when we when we talked about this film, um, Kate and I. I've seen this movie many times. And so I never really had my finger on necessarily why it made it at me uncomfortable. I thought it was a very effective movie and I liked it. And, you know, it would always scared me. And I like to watch it around Halloween. Those all those all those good things. But it wasn't until we watched it for this podcast that I came to, I thought that we were basically just going to be talking about how like awesome Ripley is. And we're definitely going to do that. But even more, I was like, oh my God, this movie's about rape. <laughs> like that's what the horror in this movie is rape and violent procreation. And we did, yeah, not, I, we did not make that up. Many writers have zeroed in on this. Um, well, it's it's crazy that we missed that because, like, I, I always thought that uh, these movies, um, like, kind of all of the Alien movies, including Prometheus, <clears throat> are kind of about procreation. But once we realized that it was, like, forced procreation, that's what it really is. That's what it is across the board. Because they don't make procreation look like normal or natural. And I don't mean like in an eraser head way of like, you know, procreation's terrifying. I mean, yeah, like, or like you know, that the parenthood should be psychological is psychologically terrifying. No, right. No, we're talking nuts and bolts here. Yeah. Yeah. The very basic act of reproducing, um, it's forcible and destroys people. And that, um, I don't know how we didn't hit on that before, but it's once you hit that, a uh, little target. Um, it really opens up the whole movie. Yeah, it's like cracking a nut. Then, like the more you yeah. see it, the more the more you the more you start to unravel that thread. The the darker and deeper the knot gets. Um, mm -hmm. And other writers have zeroed in on this too. Um, Alien is when you read about it. Alien is is often talked about as uh, leveraging the rape fear that is imprinted on women by society so much so that we almost think it's just innate and transferring it to men so that the thing that men are the most afraid about is that they're going to cowboy up and they're going to go into the cold void of space, which is our, our final frontier, right? And the final frontier. The final frontier. And that in that, in that world where they have, after conquering every continent and terraform on our planet, they're going to come across a powerful creature that will treat them the same way that they have been treating women back on Earth. Like, that is the most terrifying thing to them. And that's explicitly baked into the script. So the screenwriter, uh, Dan O'Bannon, says, um, and I quote, One thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. And I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them with sexuality. And I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to go after the men. I'm going to put every image that I can think of that will make a man in the audience cross their legs. Which I love as like an expression because it's not something you think of. I mean, I don't as like a male thing to do to like cross your legs and kind of like oh, hold yeah, yourself yeah. together. Yeah, and I think it's a smart it's a smart thing to do. It it also it's also you're you're going to have people understand this movie on very different levels if you do that. I think, um, and and have you know better better discourse and things like that coming out of this movie. Yeah, no, um, it's it's crazy because we see in a lot of cinema uh, how rape is used to further the plotline for a woman. Like that is rape is used as character development. <clears throat> Game of Thrones, Stark, whatever, no big deal. I'm not, you know, still upset about it. But there are also, like, filmmakers that, like, think that, like, they need it to be as, like, in your face and, like, triggering as possible. They won't use the word triggering because they're not thinking about what, like, the effect of it is. But, like, when they, would they probably, made the... They would probably justify it by saying realistic as possible, which... No, I mean, but, like, but that isn't even the language they use. Guys, when the girl with the dragon tattoo came out, the American version with Rini Mara, who's amazing, um, but I just could not make myself see this movie, was because the producers were like, we really want it to be in your face. Like, we want you to, like, you know, really cringe. Like, we were going to take it up a notch. And I had seen the original, and let me tell you, it was up a notch enough for me. <laughs> like, I don't need rape to be more rapey than rape. So uh, it was really... It's really amazing how nuanced this is and that they're able to imprint that fear. And it's not, like, exploitive um, in the same way. And, uh, yeah, it's really – it makes it really – it ends up being a really powerful piece of media that uh, 
spread this uh, feeling and this state of being to a new group of people. I agree. I agree. I never feel like we are... Um, it's never like a, like a flesh carnival, like a lot of... Uh, a lot of gory movies can be. And this movie has plenty of gore and plenty of thrills and chills. Like there are, there are truly horrifying things that you see, but the, the body horror of it is not sexually ex uh, exploitive in any way. Um, or, or at least not to me. I don't, I don't pick up on that. Um, no, I honestly, like genuinely thinking about it, like it's, yeah, I really don't feel like there's a, even a moment. Like, I don't even think, Ripley ever is actually naked you know what I mean like because that's the only thing I you know but no it it's all just kind of gross and horrifying you know yeah this is not like a tantalizing movie no <laughs> no I mean the most, the most the most the most that you have is when she strips down at the end of the movie um but, but she doesn't even like fully strip down and that is also what well, you know it's a trope um the hero, like, having to, like, bear themselves uh, and become more vulnerable in order to, like, truly, like, you know, face off with uh, the, the monster or the adversary in the end in order to be truly uh, the victor. Yeah. Right? And, yeah, of course. And, of course, they're showing off Sigourney Weaver's, like, bang and bod because she does have one in this movie for she sure. Death has a bang bod. <laughs> She's got a bang no. and bod. She uh, always about it. That is a gorgeous woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely doing that. But it also, I find it highly relatable because I also, after a stressful day, want to come home and take my pants off. So I get it. It makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. Even a not Me stressful. Me too. That is actually the first thing I do when I walk in the door. Jeans on? Nope. Jeans <laughs> off. <laughs> if I thought I could get away with it, I would drop them as soon as I got out of my car and penguin walk to my door. But oh I don't. Oh my god, right? It's like almost an insult to have to walk into your door in your uncomfortable jeans. Oh. I'm only kind of kidding, guys. <laughs> Basic human rights! Basic um, human rights, I want to take off my pants! So, we have another Sorry. we have another kind of scene to round this out. So, we just kind of talked about how um, Ripley, for the most part, is allowed to be a complete action star in every sense of the word. Um, it, famous, yeah. I think you pointed out, Kate, famously, this was written um, for a man. Yes, yes. Uh, originally for a man. And then, like, I guess it's like after the initial script treatments or whatever, I uh, decided that it could very well be a woman and that that would be. You know, a nice shocking thing to do to audiences. So Ripley <laughs> is one of the, yeah, I know, right? Uh, Ripley is one of those characters, though, that is not defined at all by her relationships with men in a way that, like, even I'd like to argue Leia didn't need to be defined by relationships with men. She was tied into the plot that way, even though she would have already been the plot. But you know what I mean? Yeah, like, I it, no, no man defines. Ripley, you could easily you could easily drop in um any any of the big name uh action male action stars at this point this could easily be kurt russell this could easily this could even be like arnold schwarzenegger, arnold schwarzenegger. You know I mean? yeah like, anybody. anybody i mean i know that's a different time but you know i just picked kurt russell because he's my favorite <laughs> of all of these of all the people who could play this as a man he would be the one i'd want to see i guess but yeah, I don't yeah, honestly, it. I wouldn't want to see Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm just thinking of the Terminator. Yeah, I get so. it. No, but it is. But like, it could be, it could be like a bodybuilder man playing this role, and it would not be weird at all. But we do have a scene that I think is all the more powerful and interesting because Ripley is a woman. So yeah. Ripley has been distrustful of Ash basically since the beginning, um, and really, it's because he let Kane back inside against her explicit command. Um, and and refuse to follow quarantine procedures, even though he is the science officer. So you would think that that would be that he would be even more stringent on that versus anybody else in the crew. Um, mm -hmm. So um, when uh, Dallas goes out looking for the alien with like a crowbar and a flashlight um, and is presumed dead when he disappears from their tracking monitor. Um Ripley uh, is promoted. She's now the captain of the ship and finally has the, um, the, what is the word I'm looking for? Hmm. The, the oh, she access. She's yeah. She's the, granted uh, access to uh, the, the most um, 
intimate of codes and transmissions meant only for captain's eyes. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Her promotion allows her to have unfettered access to the OS system mother and, and speak to her directly about what's happening on the ship. So yep. she goes into, she goes into mother's area, which is sort of this like twinkle light encrusted uh, cathedral of computer knowledge. Totes. <laughs> it's, it's gorgeous. It's really pretty. And weird. It's really yeah. pretty and weird. And she's, and I know that this is probably the limitations of the time because probably they just had like in a giant calculator behind up those like paneled walls. But it's, I think that to even to modernize, it's, uh, it's interesting to see that she goes into, Ripley goes into this room that is, you know, the most technologically advanced and probably the most like architecturally beautiful in the, in the ship. And then the one little piece of information she gets is gotten from, you know, something roughly the size of a large index card. Yeah, and it's a totally. little it's a little black screen. So like her her window of information in this space that holds all information ever, right, is this yeah. tiny tiny little window, which is definitely intentional. Like I know screens are small then, but like they dream big in this movie you know that's definitely a choice right or or like why why does the room look that way you know like you could make that screen look technologically impressive if you wish to but i think it's but i think it's designed to to show the true limitations and vulnerability of um the crew on the ship so ripley finds out by speaking to mother that there's a special order uh 937 that the science officer uh, Ash was was made aware of it was it was um, top secret, but um, he was given permission to know about it, and that uh, order purposely rerouted Nostromo to pass the planetoid that contained this um, this distress signal, which in the meantime Ripley has decoded somewhat and has figured out is actually a a warning, not a distress signal. That will be important later. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's been purposely, so uh, 937 has purposely rerouted the Nostromo to p- go to this planet specifically because they know the xenomorphs are down there. And they want yep. they want the Nostromo to um, pick up one of these and return it to the Earth so that the company that they work, f- that Ripley and her crewmates work for, will have access to this advanced life form and be able to utilize it for their weapons division. Yeah, which um, we should put in here. Uh, Seems creepy that this uh, company knows way more than they're telling anyone because this was not a happenstance in any way. And yeah, they're tricks. They're jags. Anyway. Yes. Well, and it also makes you realize, like, it's it's all this, like, proprietary knowledge, right? Like, yes. Like, clearly, clearly, you like get this... academic gatekeeping almost, <clears throat> but not really. But I mean, you know. But yeah, <laughs> well, or, or like things that are knowledge, knowledge of things that could make or break you in advanced life forms and scientific breakthroughs are treated as something that is, um, a monetary cash grab as opposed to something that perhaps people should know about, you know, like, yeah, absolutely. Like maybe scientists want to shout this from the rooftops. So the last line of nine, three, seven though, is, uh, that all of everything else beyond getting the xenomorph back to earth is secondary of a secondary concern. And it explicitly states that the crew is expendable in this process. Dun, dun, dun. So jerks, total jerks. So Ripley, so Ripley has kind of this, this, this is like, she knows as this is happening, you can see her kind of becoming unglued because she's learning, she's learning about this and, and it's, it's, it's awful. And this information is kind of getting fed to her on this tiny, tiny little screen. And she sits back in horror and suddenly, mm-hmm. suddenly you've been seeing just mud, like the, the little screen and it goes back to rip like a close up of just Ripley's um, face and then back to the screen. And suddenly you get a wide shot where you see the entirety of this room and you realize that Ash is sitting right next to her. Creepo. Yeah. It's like crucible. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but he's crept in on his like little ninja shoes. <laughs> yes. And he surprises her. Um, he surprises her by calmly telling her that there's an exp- there's a very logical explanation for all of this. 
and she becomes angry and they get into a fight and he starts, he's kind of wailing on her and he gives her a bloody nose and she bashes him on the head and you realize that he gets kind of this cut and you see that this milky blood is coming out of his cut instead of like normal human blood. So this is your first sign, yeah. like something's not, something's not on. So he grabs her by the hair and slams her against um, one of the crew, crew uh, cubicles and she gets kind of dazed and he lays her out on this on this kind of like this bench thing that you see the backdrop of is full of pictures of like kind of cheesecakey centerfolds of of you know like blonde scrub freshed women with no shirts on and he looms over her while she's sort of trying to trying to come to and takes one of the um porn mags and twists it into this tight little tube and oh. then kind of sets it sets it on her teeth like like he's trying to force it down her throat to choke her luckily Which is, hmm? like i symbolically works amazingly but it seems impractical and also horrifying but go ahead yeah right well right so you're like so it's 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 obviously another rape metaphor like this yeah. is, creates this phallus out of this image of women as yeah, um, the objectification of women. He yeah. literally creates a phallus and then tries to kill her with it, and tries to cram it down his commanding officer's throat, the woman who yep. is in charge of him, and mm -hmm. who now is now he is sentenced to death through his actions. Yeah, um, but luckily, like most things that exist in rape culture, somewhat, um, he does not feel any shame in doing this and is not afraid. Of what will happen yeah, to him. No, he's not trying to hide it in no, any way. He's doing this. So he's not even looking around. You realize, like, I think that one of the nice things about Alien is it gives you a good sense of space. Usually, usually you get established totally. shots and you kind of know, even though, like, I couldn't draw it out on a piece of paper for you how the Nostromo is laid out. But I no, know. No, but you do know where that space is, like, the longer that the thing goes on. Right. Like, it, and it does all kind of fill in gaps for you. In rooms, like, especially this is sort of in the hub of the ship, you realize from the establishing shot when he's when he's looming over her that the dining the, the kitchen table that they all gathered for breakfast is like feet away from him so this is happening mm -hmm. in like the main core of the ship <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and he has no compunctions about that but what that also means is there are other people around so parker you know her, hears the scuffle rushes in and grabs ash and they have kind of this melee situation and mm -hmm. Parker bashes him in the head and Ash's sort of like head and neck and part of his upper body suddenly flip back and are, they're spewing all this milky semen-like fluid out. And there are all these like tubes with what look like frozen grapes attached to them. And yeah, yeah. Parker's like, whoa, this dude's an android. And no one had any idea. So, and I think it's also important to note, you know, Ripley obviously is the hero of this and, um, you know, eventually manages to outsmart and, um, and kill the alien. Spoiler yeah. alert. But, and evade and, you know, she wins. But the alien and um, Ripley don't have, don't have any kind of a physical fight, really, until the very, very end. And even then, yeah. it's... It's not, she doesn't, she never punches. It's a little more cat and mouse. She's more like evading them. Right, right. So no, neither one of them actually, I think, even physically touches the other in this yeah, whole thing. not at all. The, not at all. The creature, uh, the creature that does uh, inflict physical harm on her to the most degree is Ash. And while you have this terrifying alien creature that lurks in the shadows and pops up and, you know, attacks people, um... Ash is sort of this mousy looking man who stands up a little bit too straight and he just attacks her in a brightly lit room. Like he yep. has no problem with that whatsoever. Yep. Um, if this is making you uncomfortable the way we're describing these dynamics, I'd just like to say, don't be creepy. Um, you know, <laughs> that seems like a good word of advice. Just don't be a creep. Oh, uh, oh, if, uh, if, if you feel like I'm, I, I'm bullying, uh, androids. Yes. Yes. No, right. Well, right. Like, if, if in any way this is at all make you feel sensitive or defensive, that that tells me that you need a reminder to not be a creep. 
So, well, but um, you know what? I would I would support a hashtag not all androids. And in fact, no, I and, and in yeah, fact, for sure, I definitely would. <laughs> and in let's fact, be honest, we're going to later be doing a podcast uh, on Janelle Monae's dirty computer, which is all about androids. And let me tell you, those androids are not creepy ashes. All right, it's true, and we don't even have to justify it because the follow-up movie Aliens basically has an entire scene that is hashtag not all androids. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, <laughs> literally, that's kind of a plot point, guys. Not to spoil it. But, uh... So, even though Ripley will eventually confront the xenomorph head-on, uh, Ash is her biggest threat in the movie and inflicts the biggest, most bodily harm on her. For sure. um, I think we can say he's truly the sum of all fears in this film. He's programmable. And he deeply admires the xenomorphs for their brutality, saying that they're this perfect, hostile organism. Um, Ash's cold logic admires that and in the resilience and the lack of morality that it displays. And the brutality. Just, yeah. Yeah. And I think this ushers in another major theme, which in this film, um, which I think is, is takes definitely from the information that I've seen, no one else really talks about this. Everyone talks about this being as a uh, being a rape film, but uh, it might be it might be the times we're living in. But I don't think so. I think there's too much here. I think that this film also shows a profound distrust of capitalism and how capitalism uses technology. And as a bunch of people who you know obviously think capitalism is for the best and that the free market should decide all, um, we think that that's just a commie message. So <laughs> we-, we won't be talking about it all. <laughs> JK, I spent a lot of time from here on out talking about how capitalism is evil. No, really, just wait. That's right. Hey, Space Bros listeners. Well, it turns out that we have so much to say about Alien that we're actually going to cut this into a two-parter and we'll be releasing the second part where we get into Alien's searing indictment of capitalism uh, next week. We're not going to be not going to take a week off in between. We're going to release a special episode next very next week so as always thank you for listening to space bras head over to apple podcast or the platform of your choice to subscribe rate and leave us a review be sure to visit outrageousmechanisms.com slash space bras that's space dash bras to see our show notes and find other excellent podcasts and as always thanks for listening bye Outrageous, outrageous mechanisms, mechanisms production. production.